Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be ending the uh, chapter. Um, over the last several weeks, we have been looking at some struggles that this church has been having. Uh, it started in chapter 5 with a man that was actually having sexual relations with his um, probably stepmother and the immorality in that church, and then the indifference in that church. And we, we had talked about the fact that, that God wants us to be clean. He wants us to be set apart. He wants us to be different. And as we are clean and as we are celebrating Christ, what he wants us to do for a lost and dark world is to proclaim the gospel and to demonstrate the gospel, not to judge the world. We are called to reflect Christ. But for the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not only called to proclaim claim the gospel and demonstrate it, but we're also called to hold each other accountable. And so that's what we saw in chapter uh, 5. And then we got to last week in chapter 6, and we were talking about lawsuits among believers, and that some of the believers, because Corinth was not only an immoral society in their sexuality, but they were a litigious society as well, and they were attacking one another, and it was um, almost a game to watch people going into court and harming one another. And some of that had seeped into the church. And what Paul was arguing is that, that if you think about the gospel, that we should be dealing with family matters within the family, that these family members, that you come together and we try to counsel one another together, we try to help one another together, we hold each other accountable together, we don't go out to a lost world to try to figure out family matters, we deal with family matters within um, the body. And if you remember at the end, he talked about a series of sins, sinful activities that people were habitually doing out in the world. And he said, I want you to know that was such were some of you, that some of you were in that pattern of life, but because of the gospel, there is a transformation that happens in your life. And you remember he had brought down three blessings that come out of the, out of the cross. One is the fact that you are washed. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. Perhaps it was looking back to the baptism or it may have been the regeneration of the Holy Spirit working in your life that God has cleaned you and washed you. And then he talked about that you're sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. It was you've been set apart and you are holy in the sight of God. Now, there is a positional sanctification where you are today, if you are in Christ, you are viewed as righteous and holy in His sight. There's a progressive level of sanctification as well as we are growing in more practical holiness throughout this life until we see Him. You are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified. The church opened, the church door, Luther, I believe, said, the church door opens or closes based on the hinge of the justification, the theology of the justification of Christ. That what God did for us in Christ is that he took Christ's character and his conduct and applied it to our account. He took our character and conduct and applied it to Christ's account. And as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin, the sin offering for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. Paul says that in light of that, you should be different. You should be different in how you live, you should be different in how you treat one another. I want you to think today about an illustration that I use with my clients. Now, I know it's a silly illustration, but I want you to think about it. Does a train run best on the tracks 
or off tracks. Well, they're laughing. That's like, James, are you kidding me? That's <laughs> are you serious? A train doesn't work well off the tracks. If it goes off the tracks, it derails. And what ends up happening is it can't move. It will move for a while until the energy is done, and then it is stuck. A train is going to run best when it's on the tracks, when it's confined to those tracks. They're able to run free. They're able to run forward. They're able to run full. It runs best when it is confined. I want you to think about that principle today as we look at what Paul is going to be dealing with today. Paul is going to be dealing with a worldview. Paul is going to be attacking the worldview that has creeped in from the world into the church. In a worldview, everybody has a worldview. Everybody does. It's a fundamental perspective of how you see life. And, and a worldviews at times will collide and it will cause conflict. Your worldview versus somebody else's worldview will collide. Worldviews will shape your thoughts. They will shape your uh, words. They will form your desires. They will motivate your action. That's what a worldview does. So now, if you have a worldview that is running counter to God's view... There is going to be a collision. And that is what was happening in this church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had, had started to adopt the world view when it came to immorality, when it came to dealing with legal matters, and when it dealt with this issue of sex that we're going to deal with in this chapter. Jay Adams, he is a Christian biblical counselor, and he says that he calls counseling this. He says it is caring confrontation out of concern. I kind of like that. That, that to, to counsel somebody well, you need to care about them. You need to really be concerned for them. You love them. You, you care about them. But then counseling is confrontive. You, you have to look at things in people's lives and you, you direct them and say that what you're doing is not right and you try to correct them. Caring confrontation out of what? Concern. Because you're concerned about them, and you're concerned that if you continue this path, you're moving towards destruction. I want you to keep all those principles in mind as we look at this text. The train runs best on its tracks. Your worldview, your perspective is going to shape how you live life. And then ultimately, counseling is caring, confrontation out of concern. Well, let's look at this passage and read it with me um, as we look along here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 18. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is bent for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is, meant for sexual, uh, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make it a member of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So Lord, as we, as we look at a, a worldview that had seeped into the church, very honestly, in many ways that worldview has seeped into our own culture and maybe into our own churches. Father, we don't like rails and we don't like to be confined. There is something within us that wants to rebel against those things. There's something that wants us to just be free and we think free is complete autonomy. Help us to see that real freedom comes from being confined to what you say and that we will be our freest, our fullest, and we'll be able to move forward in that way. As you, as you confront us by your word, Lord, help us to hear it. Help us to be changed and help us to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this chapter or this section is dealing with sex, okay? And I find that uh, Christians at times uh, don't do very well in talking about this topic. Um, some of us, unfortunately, the world would see that we are condemned, you know, we condemn people when we look at this topic of sex. And so what they would see is us as judgmental or maybe hateful in the way that we talk about this topic. And, and one of the things that we have to be very careful of is this, that as believers sometimes what we have a tendency to do is we have a grading of different sins and we, we say that certain sins are worse and then other sins are not as bad. And we've got to be very careful because all sin is, is reprehensible before God. God hates all sin. There is no doubt about that. So, so when we communicate about issues of sex and sex sins, we need to recognize that all of us are sinners and all of us have fallen short outside of the beauty of the gospel and that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven and there is no sin which you cannot be free from by the power of God. It is not the unpardonable sin if you fall to sexual sin. So when we, when we communicate in this way, we need to be faithful to God's word and we need to express God's word. But, but when we do express God's word, I need you to recognize that it is going to go against the culture. It is going to be countercultural. And, and what I'm going to share with you this morning, what Paul is sharing with us this morning, and more importantly what the Holy Spirit is sharing us, with us this morning, is that what God expects and his rails are going to be different than the rails that the world has. Christians, when we talk about this topic, we need to be balanced. The Bible is broken down into law and gospel. The Bible is broken down into truth and love. So that when we speak in a way, what we need to do is to speak truth, which is loving, but we need to do it in a loving way. So important. So what we're going to say is going to go countercultural, and what we are going to say may go different than what the world is saying out there, but I need you to understand we need to do that in a way that's going to honor God. Paul is dealing with a worldview that had seeped into the church on three levels. The first level, I believe, is the issue of your freedom. They were misconstruing freedom, and that was causing a major problem in their, in their uh, church. A second area where they had misconceptions was not only in the issue of freedom, but in the issue of their bodies. What their bodies were given to them for, 
The title of the message is, This is My Body. I want you to think about that today. Because a lot of people in this culture, and that culture and our culture, will make decisions based on, this is my body, I can do whatever I want with it. All the way from taking a baby out of a womb, all the way to other things that we do, the topic has been, this is my body. And it's not. So there was a misconception about freedom. There was a misconception about um, their body, and there was a misconception about sex. And what Paul is doing is doing a corrective here. Now, I should tell you, as, as Doug initially told us in the early parts of the chapter, um, 1 Corinthians, this Corinth, the city of Corinth, was full of sexual immorality. There was a temple up on the hill, a temple to Aphrodite's. And in that temple, they had these prostitutes, people that would give their body for sex. And apparently what would happen is that they would have dinners or activities at the temple. You would go to this temple, and then afterwards, you would take part in sexual activity with these people. And that had just become part of the culture. It was just a norm. It was to be expected. Everybody did it. In fact, if you didn't do it, you were what? Strange. You were weird. Doesn't that sound like our culture today? That to actually think of a bride, a husband and wife, a man and woman getting married and they are actually virgins in our culture would be viewed as crazy. To, to actually believe that I'm going to live with um, a person, and the first time I'm going to live with that person is in marriage, is viewed in our world as crazy. And the sad reality is that that mindset has seeped right into our church. And so the question is, is this, and what Paul is trying to say is this, that we are supposed to be radically different. See, if we're exactly the same as the world, what is the gospel going to do for us? It doesn't mean that we're not sinners. And I'm not, I got one finger out, three fingers are pointing back. Don't misunderstand me. But the, the fact of the matter is, if we are not different, how is our message going to be heard? So Paul says, I'm going to start with dealing with this issue of your freedom. Look here with me where he's, he begins the section. He says, Paul says this in verse 1, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. So, first thing I need to tell you is this. Um, in all likelihood, Paul is taking a statement that they are hearing out in the world or that they are sharing within this community, and what Paul is going to do is to counter it. Now, I don't know if you're in your version. In my version, there are quotation marks. It says, all things are lawful for me, and it's in quotation marks. And then right after it says, but not all things are helpful. So throughout this section, what Paul is going to do is he's going to take their worldview and then he's going to counter it with the biblical worldview. Your worldview, biblical worldview. Now some wonder if Paul actually said this and said all things are lawful for me at some other time and they misconstrued it. I guess it's possible. Or is this a phrase that was happening in Corinth, the city, that has now come into the church and they're misconstruing it? Either way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it came. What Paul is going to do is give the corrective. And he starts by saying this, all things are lawful for me. 
is a popular slogan. You know, I'm free to do whatever I want. I have no constraints. There are no limits. You cannot tell me what to do, right? And, that, and that's kind of like our society today, isn't it? In our sexually progressive and permissive culture, um, people believe that they can live without any limitations. They can do whatever they want. And so as they were doing whatever they want, they said that in essence, you cannot tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. But Paul said this, that here's the concern, and Paul was big on freedom. He was big on Christian freedom. In fact, he wrote a whole book of Galatians about Christian freedom. But what he was saying is this, that all things are lawful for me, you're free, but not all things are helpful. What Paul's corrective, biblical corrective to your freedom is this, edification. Is it edifying? It's one of those old words that we don't use a whole lot anymore, but edification means that it's about growth. It is about helping. It is about becoming more and more like, in Christianity, more and more like Christ. You're growing to become more like him. And what Paul is saying is this, you do have freedom, But your freedom is constrained to what is going to be most edifying for you and most for your growth in Christ and most edifying for the believers for their growth in Christ. That when you you live by that popular slogan, without limitations, without a concern for help and healing, what you are doing is you're going to create harm. Then Paul goes to the second one. He says, once again, uses the phrase, and, I, and, and this phrase must be um, really a big phrase that they're using because this phrase is going to come up again in chapter 11, uh, verse six, um, 16, I believe it is. So over and over again, Paul is going to be talking about this phrase, all things are lawful for me. But then he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. You ever notice in our culture that some people find themselves giving themselves to a particular behavior or activity or uh, substance or whatever it is, and they find themselves now dominated by that? They're enslaved. They, They find themselves now, it's not just this momentary pleasure, but this momentary pleasure is now bringing about this enslavement in their lives. They thought they were under the, they were under authority and that they were putting authority over this thing, but now they place themselves under that authority. See, the freedom that the world says actually does the opposite of setting you free. It derails you. It takes you off course. It, it doesn't edify you, and it doesn't, it, it ultimately enslaves you, and you find yourself stuck. So what Paul is saying is here is this, brothers and sisters, yes, you are free, but your freedom should be an edifying freedom. It should be about a helpful and growth-producing freedom in your life. And your freedom is supposed to be not an enslaving-type freedom. So if it is leading to enslavement or bondage in your life, it is wrong. So Paul is trying to correct their viewpoint of their freedom. But Paul is also trying to correct their viewpoint of their body. Look here, it says in verse 13. Here's another slogan. The food is for the, uh, meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Quot- quotation marks there. And God will destroy both one and the other. 
And I'm going to tell you that this is a, a little complicated because, I mean, as I, as I did it, my, as I was working through it myself and then I went through these commentaries, there's confusion on this. So where, whether fra- Paul's phrase stops with the food is for the, meant for the stomach or the stomach is for food, it stops there, or if it continues that what he's saying is that the world is also including and God will destroy both one and the other, I'm not completely sure. So what I believe he's saying is this. The world was basically saying that sex is kind of like food. I can go and get a steak, or I can get sushi, I can get Chinese, I can get Japanese, I can get Indian, I can get Mexican. It doesn't matter. It's just food. It goes in, it goes out. In and out. Just fulfill your appetites. What's wrong with you? It's not a big deal. Paul, why are you making such a big deal about sex? And so what they were saying is like, food is for appetite. Sex is just about a physical thing, appetite. I tend to believe that the following phrase, that God will destroy both one and the other, is from them. So now I need to tell you something else about Corinth. Corinth had this, uh, these philosophers um, and came out of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and these, these philosophers believed in dualism. Now, as believers in Christ, we believe in a dual nature to humanity, that we have a physical nature and an immaterial nature, a spiritual nature. Two natures that we have. But what the Corinthians believed and these Greek philosophers believed is in dualism, that you have a physical body and then you have an immaterial body, and what really matters is what's happening on the inside. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can do anything you want with your body because that's not where real sin is. The real sin is internal. You need to make sure you're right internally. And hasn't that really seeped into our culture today? Aren't there people that will say that I can continue to do sinful activities with my body, but it's okay because I'm saved? God has forgiven me. I'm under grace. And so what we do is we, we take our bodies and we, we minimize our bodies and we say that the activities that we do with our bodies are just mere appetites. And Paul's corrective is this. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The world outside is basically telling you that you do not matter. You're not significant. In fact, the world says it's only really about this moment in time. You're going to die, and that's all there is. There's no eternity. You're nothing really much more than just an animal that has been evolved. So you might as well eat, drink, and be wealthy and be happy because that's all we got this side of heaven. And Paul says, don't you know how significant you are? that every single person I'm looking at in this room is significant because what God has done is he's created you. He has placed his image in you. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has redeemed you. He's chosen you. He has adopted you. He has put his spirit in you. He has connected his son to you. You are significant. And the body that you have, you're going to be given a new body in heaven. 
So Paul was going to, he first started with the corrective of their freedom, but now he's going to go to the corrective of their body. He says, your body was not meant for just sexual pleasure. If that's the only reason we were created, just to have sex like animals do, mating like animals, and that's basically what we've done in our culture, and we believe that that's right and moral. You are higher than that. Your body was not meant for sexual immorality. Your body was meant for the Lord. Hear that. I want you to hear that your body is not only for the Lord, but look at verse 14. And God raised up the Lord, and he raised up his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will raise us up by his power. Your body is destined to be raised. Yes, all of us are going to take our last breath unless Christ comes back and, and our bodies are going to be separated. Our body's going to go into the ground and our, our spirit is going to go to heaven and it's going to reside in heaven until the last day and then God is going to raise up our bodies and they will be united again and you will be given a new body similar to what Christ had on earth. As Christ was raised, you are going to be raised. See, the body that you have is not just for sexual appetite. Your body is for the Lord, and your body is destined for glory and eternity. He says in verse 15, do you not know? He's basically saying, you've got this, guys. I've taught this to you. You know this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now he's amping it up even more. It's not just that your body is, is special in the fact that he is for the Lord, and it's not just that it was raised, but you are united to Christ. In some mystical way that I cannot completely explain to you, Jesus Christ, the human Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, is seated at his Father's right hand today, right now. But in a mystical way, he is with you, living in each one of you, and he does that by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ lives in your body if you're in Christ. You are the Lord's. You are destined to be raised. You are united to Christ. And then he goes on to say this. Jump down to verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. We have a beautiful building here, and we, we are very thankful for what God has given us in this building, but it's just a building. But what God has said is this, but, but in the temple in the Old Testament, what God would do is that was the place where he would reside symbolically. He would be with his people in the tabernacle. He would be with his people in the tent. That is where he came down. This is so radically countercultural. Most of the gods out there are separate and distinct, and we're trying to get to them. Your God came to you and is now living in you if you're in Christ. Oh, my goodness. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is a worship sanctuary. And then he ends the section by saying this, your body has been bought with a price. You're not your own. So glorify God in your bodies. That God wants you to reflect him in your body. He wants you to reflect you, him in the way you think, in the way you speak, in the way you act. He wants you to signal him to a world. 
So Paul is doing a corrective of their viewpoint of freedom. You have freedom, but it's within limits. The limits are this, edification and away from enslavement. He, he tried to correct their viewpoint in their bodies, and he's saying that you, you can have, you, can, you are special and you're significant. You're special and significant because God has given you a body, a body that is the Lord's, a body that is destined to be raised, a body that is united to Christ, a body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit, a body that is used to be glorifying God. And then finally, he does a corrective of their issue of sex. Well, that's what this whole section basically is about. But really, if you, you can't get the first two things right, you won't get this last area right. If you don't get the freedom issue right, that freedom is not freedom autonomously, it is freedom within limits. And if you don't get the second thing right, that your body is to be used for the Lord, it's not your body, it is His body, then you can't get the third area right when we talk about sex. And what Paul looks at, and he does a corrective with their viewpoint on sex. And, and the sex, if we go back to the first verse, if it's not helpful for the building up your spirit, it's wrong. If it's leading to enslavement and domination, it is wrong. If you are connecting your body in an immoral way, and there is only one moral way for sex, it doesn't matter what the world says, God, in the beginning, brought a man and a woman together in marriage. And that is the only place where sex is appropriate. Premarital, extramarital, or any other type of sex is wrong. Ungodly. And, and so that immorality is going to influence you. But he wants you to think about sex in not just a physical way. He wants you to think about sex spiritually. This is challenging what he says in verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a, a prostitute? That's shocking. To think the Lord Jesus Christ is in my body and that when I'm looking at that thing on the screen or I'm doing that activity or I am with that person, Christ, so united with me because he never leaves me, he is there with me as I'm doing this. I am taking Christ's body who he has given to me on loan and I'm using that body in a sinful, sexual way. That should shock you. That's what Paul was trying to wake them up. You got to be different than what the world is saying, Paul is saying. And when Paul said this, that you're uniting Christ's body to a prostitute, he said never. The end of verse 16. This is so strong in the Greek. It is never, never, never. May it never be. God forbid. Then he goes on to say that in verse 16, for it is written, God says, the two will become one flesh. That something that happens when two people enter into a sexual relationship is this. 
and this is true in all circumstances, these two have become one. They're fused together. There's no such thing as casual sex today. I sit in a counseling office day after day and I see the ruins of people's lives who have not stayed on the train tracks, the limits of what God has said about this issue. And it's not to be. Paul ends this section by not only confrontive counseling, but then he gives some caring counsel, and he gives two commands. The first command is in verse 18, flee, flee. Now, there are some of us in this room that have committed these sins, and maybe you have been committing these sins even recently. And God's counsel to you, command, flee, run, stop, go a completely different direction. If you have to end the relationship, end the relationship. But you, because the most important relationship is eternal with God, flee. And so he says, flee sexual immorality. And he, he talks about the fact that I think he's maybe thinking back to even the Old Testament. You remember Joseph when Joseph was with Potiphar's wife and Potiphar's wife was seeing him and, and desiring him and, and, you know, probably day after day she is probably trying to get him and finally she grabs at his coat and he runs out of the coat. He says, I got to get out of here. He runs. Paul is looking at this idea of running, running in a way. Now, the next phrase is, is complicated as well, and I'm not completely sure. It says, every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but sexually immoral people sin against their own bodies. And the commentators, they're all over, right? Is it possible that Paul is just talking another slogan here, that this is a new slogan that they've brought up, that, you know, you could do a sin and it's just against your body, but sexual sin is against your own body? I don't know. Nowhere else does Paul speak of sins outside the body in contrast to sins against the body. So what does Paul mean? What I can tell you by the context is this. Your body is not your own. And the body of every other person that you would be with is not their own. And that you're, if you're in Christ, your body is connected to Christ. So I think what Paul is saying is this. Because you become one with Christ when you are in union with Christ and you make yourself physically united with somebody else, you're bringing him into it. I think it's also possible that sexual sin, though it is not worse on the list, it causes immense damage. That the, the pain I've seen of people that have been involved in this, the damage is great. I wonder if it damages more than any other sin. In 25 years of counseling people, I don't know if I have seen another sin damage more people than this area. 
It, it's distinctive in that way. It's not worse than all other sins, but it creates so much more damage than other sins. And your body is meant for something radically different. So his first command is to flee, run away. And it is in the present tense imperative, so that basically means to continue to run away. Don't just run away today. You need to run away tomorrow. And then maybe an hour after that, and an hour after that, you need to be continually fleeing from this. Sin is great. Sin is enslaving. And you must run. Then he gives a second command. The second command is is not the negative but the positive. It's found the very last line of the section. So glorify God in your bodies. So God, what he is saying is this, flee but glorify God. Flee but glorify God. When we get to chapter 10, he will have the same thing about idolatry. Flee idolatry, glorify God in your body. Run from sin. Some for, for my young people here, some of the people that you hang out with, some of the things that are going to be done in the school systems that you're at, some of the worldview that is out there is, sounds good. They're going to tell you everybody's doing it. But I will tell you, it will take you off track. Run. I would tell you that the things that you watch on TV, the things that you listen to on the radio, the stars and the athletes that you follow, are they biblically based? For my adults here, you know this. Is there a gap in your life between what you know to be true and how you're living? Close the gap today. I end with this. You've been bought with a price. We were just singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. I can see the love in your eyes. That Jesus loves you so much and the Father loves you so much that he has given you rails to stay on. Not to hinder you, but to protect you and to really, truly set you free. And so if you've gone off those rails, and, and many of us have at times, you can get back on the rails. You can get back on those rails and confess to God and ask for his forgiveness, repent and turn a completely different direction, obey in spite of the feelings that you have, Run and glorify God. You can do that. Jesus said, it is the truth that sets people free. If you really want real freedom, real free people know God's word. And they know that they are redeemed by God. That's what a really free person knows. They know their salvation. A really free person lives. Oh, they live free. They're not bound. They don't plan. They're dependent ultimately on God and nothing else. They're free. See, really free people live honestly. They don't have to hide their sin. 
because they are an open book. They're really free. When they screw up and they will, they confess that sin to God, they confess it to others, and they move forward. Really free people don't have to put on mask. They don't have to hide. Really few people live in this moment today, right now. They live in light of eternity. Really free people live without anxiety. The fear that dominates people today is often because they have worried about the things that have enslaved them and have not been edifying in their lives. And really free people live without that. Really free people stand firmly on the gospel. They know who they are. They know whose they are. They know when to say yes, and they know when to say no, because they stand on the word of God. But a really free person is new, brand new. For if you're in Christ, you are what? A new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So today, let us live as free people. So Father, we we praise you and we thank you. Father, there's so many of us that think this is our body. (laughs) It's not. Father, it wasn't even our body to begin with. You created us. And every single person in this room, every single person that hears my voice is so very special, not because of themselves, but because you have stamped your image into their lives. Help them to live according to that image. But for the believer that hears me this morning, I pray that they would know not only have they been created, but they have been connected and chosen by you. That they are redeemed by your son's precious blood. That it was his body. At the communion table, he, he said, this is my body broken for you. Well, well, in essence, it was his body broken for us so that we could be significant. And then it's his body that was raised from the tomb so that we can have a body that will be raised again. So correct us when it comes to our freedom, Lord. Correct us when it comes to our bodies, Lord. Correct us when it comes to sex, Lord. And remind us the grace of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We're forgiven and we are free. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.